Welcome to Learte de l'Armée, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. This week's guest <laughs> is Michael Chittister, owner and proprietor of Hema Bookshelf and director of Wichtenauer. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, so I think, you know, you're a name that's... Um, really become infamous in the HEMA community at large. Um, so you don't need much of an introduction because everybody knows of your exploits with Wichtenauer. Um, but tell me a little bit about your martial arts background and how you got started in the study of Western martial arts. So my martial arts background is primarily just HEMA. Um, I got started in 2001. I was a freshman in college and I heard about some weirdos who practice sword fighting in a local park and thought that sounded awesome. And so I went and tried to find them. And I actually ended up finding a completely different group of weirdos um, because the people I'd heard about were a LARP group called Dagger here, I later found out. But I encountered on a different field somewhere on campus an ARMA study group uh, led by Jake Norwood uh, at the time and stew file and so i got hooked and i started doing it way back then uh took a few years off here and there but that was basically my beginning and you know uh it kind of went from there i became head of the study group around about 2007 ish and eventually left arma well i got kicked out of arma in 2006 but stayed with the study group and eventually was in charge of the Arma study group, despite not being a member. And then uh, we we left the, the entire study group left Arma in 2009, became True Edge Academy, which is a school that still exists out in Provo, Utah and Salt Lake City um, and is doing quite well. And around about 2010, got involved in Wichtenauer and 2011 moved to Boston left my club behind. And I've been primarily doing Wichtenauer stuff as my contribution to HEMA ever since then. So outside of the Western martial arts, all I really have is I dabbled a little bit in Taekwondo and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu while I was in college. And that's it. Beyond that, it's 100% stuff I've gleaned from HEMA. Almost 20 years now. Crazy to think that. Wow. That's a long time. So it was a little bit of divine intervention that sort of uh, led you into finding HEMA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you might say that. So, yeah, and, I mean, for all for whatever HEMA was back then, we were using wasters and we had three fencing masks for a club that had as many as 20 or 30 people sometimes. And, yeah, it was a very different beast, but I've watched it evolve since then. Yeah, you. I'm, and that's one thing I think that you have an interesting perspective on, um, and I think is really interesting and something I, I definitely want to get into as we get into the podcast um, is, you know, because you've you have so much experience watching Kima evolve. Um, I feel like right now the Bolognese community, um, which you know, given this is a Bolognese podcast, is sort of going through. Uh, a bit of growth, um, there seems to be a lot more interest in it. And we're starting to 
have more people translating texts and providing more information and stuff like that. Um, what, what are some things that you would say, uh, especially with your background um, in the Kunsteffekten and having seen the KDF scene grow and interpretations develop and evolve over time, um, what would be your advice to the Bolognese community as we start to go through that growth and get our hands on the texts? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I don't really know. It's every, so one thing that I've become convinced of over time is that every sort of thread of this thing that we call HEMA is different and needs to be handled differently. Um, I mean, that's a really obvious examples. As Bolognese practitioners, you guys have access to just an endless supply of solo drills, which no, which KDF doesn't have, doesn't exist. I mean, if you talk to the, the Armizare guys, the Fiore guys, they don't have solo drills unless they made them up or they read Guy Windsor's book and he made them up, right? There's just not a way to practice by yourself. So that's a huge leg up that you guys have that other people don't, as well as ideas about what... Uh, sort of what it's supposed to look like in, I think you have a lot clearer notion of some of the styling that goes into the fencing, not just what the, what the move, what the techniques are, but sort of how the movement is supposed to work, which you can get out of those solo drills, um, which gives you advantages uh, in things that we've been arguing about in, in the KDF community forever um, and continue to argue about. Um, I don't know. I think that the advice that I give to everybody is that it's important to sort of take the text on its own terms and not, I mean, it sounds like specious advice, right? But don't, don't try to, don't assume that you know what the text is telling you, even if you've read it before, but go into it and try to have fresh eyes. And it sounds like it's just nonsense advice, but it's, the things that have helped me progress is going back to the book and trying to pretend I don't know what he's talking about and seeing if I can make it mean something that is not what I previously thought it meant and just started poking around doing in that direction. Um, Jake Norwood has this thing that he talked to me about before where he'll like, if he hears a crazy idea that he's pretty sure is wrong, he'll devote like six hard months to assuming that it's true and working with it. Like not just try it out, but but really put in some time, assuming that it's gospel, and then see if he still thinks it's wrong afterwards. Um, and if he absolutely fails with it, then he'll throw it away. But otherwise, maybe it's something you can learn from. And I know that there's, especially when with a small community, there tends to be a lot of people who disagree because there isn't enough people to form consensus yet. So I think it's important to take the perspective that you don't really know anything and you're even if you're teaching people you're also trying to learn what the text says over and over again because if you're not changing your mind about what the text says then you're probably not actually developing as a martial artist and that's kind of sad for you in that case i say uh so maybe not the easiest to apply advice in the world but that's sort of the way that i approach manual interpretation is go back. I mean, the other thing you can do is try and take the text apart and put it back together again. 
Mm. Um, and that's lots of fun. And I've done that a lot for the Lichtenauer inspired texts and maybe less for Fiore and some other stuff I've looked at, but break it apart and see how it works. Um, some people like to copy, like actually like cut the text into pieces and put it on flashcards and move them around and see if you can explore collection connections that way. I'm more digital. I do everything on the computer. I don't need to have like a, a pin board with red thread and everything connecting things together. But some people find that really, really helpful. Yeah. I think Jess Finley is currently literally building one of those <laughs> partly just for fun, for kicks and giggles and partly because it's useful. Um, but you've got like a solid five or six texts, all of which are beefy, meaty texts, right? You've got Manciolino, you've got Marozzo, uh, Della Gocchie, Vigiani, you've got the Anonimo, and I feel like I'm forgetting one. De Alessandro, does he really count? I don't think so. I don't think we have an English translation. <laughs> I certainly never read it. I'm just thinking of the lists that I've made and seen. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, there's Senese, but he's rapier and he's like a hundred years later and he is just incidentally from Bologna. Yeah, you could you could loop Palladini in there. He has some Oh yeah, Palladini might. Yeah. I also haven't read Palladini, even though I, I own the book, but I there's so many books that I haven't read yet. Yeah. <laughs> I agree, me too. <laughs> Every time. Uh, you know, my, my bookshelf is has just as many KDF books as it has of it's anything in the Italian traditions and you know, it's always my goal to get back and read everything that I can. But see, so, I mean, I, I think that was a, a great answer um, and incredibly insightful, especially since I, I surprised you with that question off the cuff. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I definitely appreciate it. Because, oh, but but yes, yeah, so, so what I was, was going to finish saying then is like each one of those texts has a different approach to presenting the material. Right, and I'm I'm really going to speak off the cuff here because I don't really know the material that well because I'm not a Bolognese guy and I never have been. But right, Vigiani is really really tightly focused on single sword. These mm -hmm. are the things, if I recall correctly. Whereas people like Marozzo and, and Manchilino are just go crazy with lots of different weapons and weapon forms. And I think that trying to piece together how those fit into a big picture is valuable work, and it's how most people tend to approach it or at least wish they could approach it i'm pretty sure is trying to understand what the bolognese tradition is but there's also a really important piece which is really drill down and find out what each particular master is teaching that's different from everybody else will be just as educational so if you're looking for an for a project and you're kind of bored with the sources try to figure out you know, assume that they're not actually connected to each other at all and try to figure out what they're teaching in isolation and then see if you can build an argument that they're not even related, that, that there is no Bolognese tradition. And maybe you can, but I don't think you could. But even, even if you can't, that'll be more educational than trying to build a, another grand unified theory. And that's another useful thing approaching any source is start questioning some of the assumptions about how they're linked together and what things are the same, what things are different. Yeah, that's, that's really great. I, I actually did that recently. I started a project where I'm, I took the Anonimo and I imported it into Excel and I broke it apart into all the, all 460 plays of singles. <laughs> <laughs> and I broke them apart into their specific starting guards um, to start looking for uh, patterns. Um, 
So just like you, I, I work digitally, but sometimes I work manually. I used to try to do all that, like writing things out with fountain pens. Like um, <laughs> before you posted or before you started selling the, uh, the Wichtenauer black book of, um, of Lichtenauer, um, I had a red notebook and I used to sit on Wichtenauer and the, the three translations of essentially what you ended up importing into the book um, which was what, like um, Ringek, um, Danzig. Danzig and then 3227A, yeah. Yeah, I used to sit and transcribe all of that into a notebook. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I mean, I was working, I was working third shift at a hospital in, a, in the hospital laboratory, and I had a lot of time on my hands um, <laughs> between, you know, my normal work, but there was a lot of downtime and trying to keep yourself awake. So I would just sit and I would transcribe. And I got pretty far. Um, I think uh, I think I got up to um, Spreckfenster before I finally ended up deviating. Or maybe you had <laughs> maybe it was that year that you ended up actually um, publishing that on on Lulu, and I and then I stopped. That's, that's funny because I did a lot of good work tonight work when I was working third shift in a alarm company, and was just sort of finding things to do between alarms. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of downtime when I had to stay busy and a lot of people read books, but I, that, I didn't really have books I wanted to read. So I was just coding with an hour in my spare time. See, maybe third shift is what actually powers HEMA. <laughs> and all the, all the good ideas happen at night, right? So you've got nothing but night on third shift. <laughs> That's right. So, um, how did you actually get involved with Wichtenauer? How did that start? Well, so Wichtenauer was originally the brainchild of Ben Michaels, um, who was formerly of MKDF. And he's, and then later Broken Plow, and now he's left the HEMA community. But in about 2009, he wanted to put together, so this takes us back to the dark ages of fencing manual study. Um, right, pre-2010 or so, the before times, when there wasn't really any consolidated resources. So if you wanted to study something, there was a whole lot of hunting and gathering around the internet, trying to scrape together little bits and pieces of things. There were lots of websites that would have a couple random transcriptions or translations, like club sites by the club instructor might have done something. Um, and there was some small scale community efforts like shieldha.org. Um, Roger Norling's Horror site got up around this time, maybe a little before this. Um, the HEMAC site had some things. That's where Craig Pitpletti's Manchelino translations lived for a while. But there wasn't really a place you could go and just find things. And they were never in a way, that, in a format that was easy to use or easy to read. They were in whatever format, whoever put them together, <coughs> copied and pasted them onto the internet in. So Ben Michaels had this idea that was twofold. One of them was he wanted to break the stranglehold on the HEMA black market because there wasn't just all these websites. There were also people who were passing things around privately. And there were a lot of translations that you just couldn't get unless you knew somebody who knew somebody. Um, who did the translation, like Bob Sharon, um, who's a name that people don't really remember anymore, but 15 years ago, he was a big deal. 
had done a complete translation of the Getty Fiore manuscript in like 2000. So way back in early days for um, American Hema, he had a whole translation and he was going to publish it and never did. So a lot of people had that translation, but the only way you could get it is by being one of the bros in the know, as Christian Trosclair puts it. Um, and one of the cool Fiore guys, I never saw it. I still haven't seen it, um, for example, but people had it and the people who had it would pretend like um, they had all, they knew the mysteries of the universe, um, but they couldn't share them. And there were lots of scans of things that were passed around the same way because someone bought them and gave them to his friends and they gave them to their friends, but they wouldn't put them online either because they agreed not to um, with the museum, which was somewhat common or just because they wanted to feel special by having something that nobody else had. So there was a whole lot of stuff. I mean, I got into the trading game quite a lot of acquiring things and trading them to people who didn't have them yet. Um, and I got some pretty cool things. So an easy example is I discovered that the Morgan Library and Museum in New York had partnered with Princeton to get all of their medieval manuscripts their illustrated medieval manuscript scanned, which meant that the Morgan Fiore manuscript got scanned and nobody in HEMA heard about it because it was part of the Princeton Index of Christian Art, <laughs> which is not a place that you might go looking for fencing manuals. Right. Um, it was also a subscription-only database that was fairly expensive. So going to a research university like I was at the time, I managed to get access to it and download all the pictures. And then suddenly I had the only color scans of the Fiore manuscript from the Morgan. And I managed to trade those around and get some other rare scans from people in exchange and some cool stuff before eventually they became common enough that they were no longer worth anything. And that's kind of how the, the process went in this, this dark age. <coughs> so Ben Michaels thought that if he could set up a site which he thought he called the WikiLeaks of Hema, or the WikiLeaks of Hema, where people could donate their um, secret, um, illicit Hema possessions anonymously, and he would post them on this Wiktenauer site, and then everybody could access them without anybody being known as the guy who couldn't keep a secret or whatever. And he also had this secondary goal where he wanted to take all of these translations that were all over the internet and organize them by technique. And he had this idea that all disagreements about interpretation were based on incomplete information. So if we could just see all the different texts and what they had to say about each technique, then the interpretation would become obvious. We, he, we were so naive back then, but this seemed like a possibility at the time. And so disagreement would go away if everybody had the same information um, from the fencing treatises. And that turned out to be a pipe dream and not actually real. So, because of course the sources themselves don't agree about what the techniques are um, at the end of the day. So Ben Michaels stuck around for about the first year and he built the original site and administered it. And then he kind of was done with it and the responsibility passed on to me. So he launched this site by emailing about 12 people who were, 
who Jake Nerwood recommended as being involved in manual study. And I was on the list. Um, and I was the only person who volunteered work and actually helping to build it. Whereas other guys, I mean, guys like <coughs> um, Dio Kagadon, for example, who's done tons of work. And he's like, yeah, you can use my work, but uh, I, I, I don't have time to help with this beyond that. So take whatever you need and good best of luck to you. And that was sort of most people's response, which I totally understand. I mean, that's what I say these days when someone asks if they can use stuff from LinkedIn Hour for whatever project they want to do. Like, yeah, that sounds cool. But also I'm so busy. So I can't help you beyond what's already online. Um, and so, but at that point I kind of took over um, as the person who was actually doing work on the wiki at the time when nobody else was, it kind of was automatically felt to me. And I've been doing that ever since. That would have been about 2012 when, or 2011 when Ben Michaels soft quit. Yeah. And passed the torch to me. And, it's... and then eventually he, he, couldn't keep up with the admin anymore. And so Christian Tosclair took over that piece of it and Ben Michael stepped away completely. So he's now just our deadbeat dad. <laughs> That's fantastic. So one of, what's the, uh, I mean, so once you had taken over with an hour, how did you get all of the, the manuscripts and really help it to grow to the level that it's at now? Uh, lots and lots and lots of hours. Um, I estimated several years ago that I would just put about 8,000 hours into the Wicked Hour um, of work, which is multiple years of work, um, full-time hours. But I don't know. I mean, I'll, on one level, it's a big collaboration. I don't generate most of the content on Wicked Hour. I mean, I do my projects. I've, I, I hope, made some contributions to the body of transcription and translation out there. But most of it was done by other people. And what I've done for the most part is catalog the works of other people and try to compile them into usable formats, um, which just happens one page at a time, lots and lots of copying and pasting, and uh, a bit of formatting to try to figure out how to unify um, the work of lots of different people who don't follow the same standards, but there's, I mean, there's an extent to which it just comes down to being willing to spend 15, 20 hours a week, you know, treat it like it's a part-time job and um, doing all the grunt work that nobody else is willing to do. That's what it comes down to for a lot of HEMA projects is not if you have a cool idea that no one's ever had, but if you're willing to do work that no one's ever actually been willing to do, then you can uh, create something that doesn't exist yet. At least that's been my experience. So <clears throat> a lot of it, a lot of it, the hard part isn't so much the grunt work as getting people to contribute resources. I mean, you have to, there's a lot of talking to museums and libraries, commissioning scans, getting, making things accessible that way, trying to get people in HEMA who don't like each other to contribute to the same project. What well, is less of a problem now than it used to be. Um, 
a lot of it, a lot of Lichtenauer has ended up being, you know, a coalition of people who hate each other, but as long as I'm there to act as intermediary, then things can still happen. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a really big project, but the little, the bits and pieces of it tend to be fairly simple of just getting things onto web pages, figuring out how they relate to each other and endless copy pasta. Yeah. So, so for those who have specialized skills that are interesting contributing in Wicked Hour, um, how can they get involved? Um, so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of individual tasks, um, that people can take on. I mean, a big one is transcription and translation. That's sort of the field that drives Wicked Hour. So if you have those skills, I mean, transcription is not hard to learn. Translation does require a bit of, of language skills. Um, so you, you know, you might want to spend some time on Duolingo before you take some of that on. But um, a lot of the contributions to Victor Hour doesn't actually require you to interact with the system at all. People just send me resources and ask me to put them online and I take care of it. So if you are interested in working with transcription, which is the copying of the text off a page and you know putting it into an electronic format where we can read it. So basically you look at the page and you write down the words um, is the most basic form. That that's or if you want to work on translations, which everyone knows what that means, then I'm happy to take those resources and put them on. If you want to help with this system itself, it doesn't require a lot of experience with anything technical. It does require a bit of practice um, to learn how some of the formatting works, but I'm happy to walk people through that process. Um, the big thing that takes the most time at the moment is reformatting all of the transcriptions, which is a process that, we, that I started a couple of years ago. Uh, we got this new tool which allows us to take scans of a book or a manuscript and actually put the transcription, attach the transcription to the scans so they appear on the same page. But that means that we have to, we have to go back and redo literally every page on Wicked Hour, taking the transcription and attaching it to these individual book scans, which is a slow, tedious process. And it's taken me years to get most of the way through it but like 20 of the biggest projects are still left out of the hundred or so that I started with of doing this project. I think Morozzo is coming up soon, um, for example, and I have a full transcription of this entire book, but going through page by page and pasting it onto each page um, is, there's a reason why I've procrastinated to the end um, <laughs> along with some other big ones. So, Work like that can be done in small chunks, right? Doing one page takes like five minutes. It's only a big job because there's hundreds of pages in each one of these books. Mm -hmm. So that would be a place that I could get people started. Some people have in the past year have volunteered to do some work on that and have worked on books. Um, in, in a lot of cases, the transcription is already done. So literally all you're doing is looking at the page, taking the text out of a PDF, putting it into the page and applying formatting to it so that we can then um, 
the advantage of this is we can take it and we can do what's called transclusion. We can make the text appear on different pages so that anytime the this source transcription is edited, all the pages that show it are automatically updated. Plus, when you're looking at like the Morozzo page, you can click on a link if you're not sure the transcription is right, and it'll pop up what the actual book page shows you, and you can check the transcription. Um, so it's, it makes it a more useful tool. It just takes so long to set up. Um, and there's a lot of jobs like that that are just copy-paste jobs um, that, I can, that I would love help with because it'll take me quite a while to get it done myself. Like I'm hoping to wrap this up by the end of the year uh, and maybe not on track for it at the moment. <laughs> um, so yeah, but there, there are probably other jobs as well. Like really anything that you're interested in related to fencing treatises and, and so on, there's probably work that I can find for you that's, that's related to it. In, in some cases, we've had people actually going to museums and looking at books and so on um, to get information on what the physical books look like. And that's other pro another project that we've worked on, um, trying to find all the copies of these early books and note, like what I would love to find, and we've started doing this for Joachim Meyer and for a couple of the other 16th century German texts, but getting people to go to find all the copies of each of these, especially the 16th century books um, in this time period when people were still in the habit of writing notes in their books and actually finding annotated copies. Uh, like if we could find a copy of Marozzo that actually had notes by a fencer in it, that would be groundbreaking, huge. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's tons of books in the world from the 16th century that people have made notes in, but finding fencing manuals with notes, I've only found a couple um, and not any one that people are super interested in. It's you know, the really obscure masters that no one cares about, but finding like a Marozzo, a Meyer, a Manciolino, although Manciolino is tiny and probably couldn't fit a lot of notes in it. Yeah, Manciolino would fit in your back pocket. It's a, a really small book, but Marozzo is good sized. Um, it's almost the size of a modern book. So, uh, or for that matter, finding a painted Marozzo would also be sweet. Hmm. We found two copies of Joachim Meyer where the, the woodblock prints were painted um, and they're beautiful books. And this was a relatively common practice. So there ought to be copies of Marozzo that have also been painted um, by their original owners or, you know, their original owners hired a painter to paint them. And that would be awesome too. I found an Agrippa like that. I found a number of fencing manuals, but not a Marozzo yet. But so I would love to organize people to go find all the copies of Marozzo and Manciolino in libraries. I mean, also Vigiani and Della Gocchia, but Marozzo is my favorite. Um, and, and just page through them and see what's in there. Because I'm sure there's got to be at least a few copies that have cool stuff in them. Yeah. Um, so in terms of... Um texts that are in um, the Americas. Do we know, I think I know of only two um, that I can think of, copies of Marazzo at least, one that's at the Met and then one that's up in Vancouver with Devin Borman? Well, there's definitely more than that because I've handled a couple. 
Um, let me find my spreadsheet really quick. I started, so last year, to give a, a slight amount of background, a, a woman who's associated with the Meyer Firefighter Guild, whose name I'm not sure of, Sarah, Sarah Barsness, I think, um, had, an, had told us at Meyer Symposium, this would have been two years ago before COVID, that she had made this spreadsheet of all the copies of Meyer she could find. And I, I needed help filling it out. And so I took that on immediately. Roger Norling and I and a few others jumped at the chance to, to help expand this because it's a cool idea. Um, and then I started making these sheets for all of the interesting early modern books. Um, and I know that I did, uh, when would have the last time I opened this have been? Um, so, but I definitely did Marozzo and I did Manciolino. I thought they were all on Google Sheets. Well, I lost it, it's gone forever. Um, <laughs> sad, but I, I definitely have seen, there's a copy of Marozzo that's in Chicago at the Newbury Library. I saw that one at WMAW two years ago. Well, before WMAW on my way up north, I stopped there and we looked at that one. There's at least one that Yale has. Um, there is that gorgeous painted 1568 Marozzo that's at the Met. And I think they have a 1536 as well. Um, I would imagine that there are quite a few in other US libraries. I mean, Morozzo, it was a number of editions and I don't think they were very small editions either. So they got around. Um, and then of course, there's a ton in Europe as well. And Roberto Gotti has like 15. Oh. So I, I've never actually been to his house, but many of many people I know in him I have. And, I'm told that he has like a drawer that he just keeps all of his Marozzo's in. <laughs> He's like, no, I just, I can't help it. Every time I see one up for sale, I have to buy it. It's my favorite. That's fantastic. No, Could be rich, right? Yeah. Um, sure. So if, let's do a quick WorldCat search here. Sure. And let's see if we can find out how many Marozzo's actually exist in the United States. Of course, they're not all on the same record. Yeah, I did this work when I was bored at work like two years ago. Yeah, so uh, Folger Shakespeare Library has one, University of Kansas, um, UCLA has one. And I'm just looking at 1536 right now. Harvard apparently has one, although have I seen Harvard's? I must have. I've seen all their fancy manuals. I forgot about that one. The, the Met has several. New York Public Library has one. Like these books are around, they were not hard to get and they're in a lot of collections. So I think if people wanted to start looking for these, there's decent odds that the nearest large city to you will have one that you can go find. And I'll tell you the same thing I told people in the Marozzo project, even if somebody else has already been in to see it, so we don't need you to go look at it for us, go look at it anyways, because old books are cool and it's easier to get into these special collections in many cases than you think. Yeah. You don't need to be like a PhD or a professor to get into the back rooms of some of these libraries. You just need to make some very polite requests. Um, and like, especially the, the ones that are public institutions, their whole job is sharing these books with the public. And even 
some of these private museums that that are technically private but do public you know viewings of things like they're happy to show these things to you and i i wish everybody in hema had the chance to actually interact with some of these uh, original source materials because it kind of gives you a perspective on what the what the historical fencers themselves were involved in you know what i mean and all not to mention the you know the, just the fact that some people get off on the idea the little thrill that you know Joachim meyer might have touched this book and now i'm touching it yeah you know uh, uh, there's decent odds that morozzo at some point picked up the copies of his book that he had printed in 1536 so if you want to touch something that morozzo touched go find one of those books and there's a lot of them around um so Virginia that, Tech has one, Cornell has one. Oh, perfect. That actually kind of leads me into my my begging and pleading for Hema Bookshelf. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that one day uh, you'll um, you'll print a facsimile of uh, of Marazzo. That would be interesting. I mean, so initially I went into this with the idea. So for people who aren't familiar, Hema Bookshelf is a new venture of mine that I started two years ago of trying to produce inexpensive facsimiles of fencing manuals. So the facsimile industry runs on really expensive books. Um, these are not just like a book that has pictures in it, but this is an attempt to recreate uh, like a replica of a historical book. So the, ide the ideal facsimile will look and feel and smell and everything exactly like the original, down to the cover and the texture of the paper. Um, they'll do high-end printing, although in some cases there are facsimiles that are handmade. So someone's actually hand copied them and tried to replicate the art and the calligraphy with a pen and so on. Like there's different degrees of facsimile-ness. When I went to the Met, I went to the Morgan Library last year. They showed me a facsimile of the um, Morgan Picture Bible, right? The, the one with all the crazy weapons and the murder piles um, that was done on actual parchment, like vellum, that was bleached and they printed the scans onto them. And it was full size, which is like 30 inches tall um, and like six inches thick. It was just an enormous, really impressive book. I looked it up afterwards and it cost $18,000. Wow. <laughs> Although they got a free copy because that's one of the conditions of when they let people print their scans. Yeah. That's so the really expensive facsimiles are really expensive. <clears throat> um, you can easily spend five figures, maybe even six figures on the really high end facsimiles. They're, they're comparable in cost to a lot of actual historical books because they're usually very rare books that you're not going to be able to buy. So it's the next best thing. Um, and they're usually targeted at, at institutions with deep pockets like universities um, who can't afford actual manuscripts. So they buy facsimiles for their manuscript students to look at, right? Or rich collectors. So for example, they produced, someone produced a, manu a facsimile of 133 about 10 years ago, a company called Extraordinary Editions. And it went for, I believe, 750 pounds. Wow. Um, was the price, which works out to almost a thousand dollars. And I thought to myself a couple of years ago, how much does it actually cost to make a leather bound book? Like I have 
really high resolution scans of a lot of manuscripts. I can make a really nice print, but how much would it cost to make like a <coughs> sort of low end facsimile where it's not a perfect replica, but it's a reasonably decent replica. And started off with Talhofer and that worked pretty well. And then we just, we're just finishing up now doing uh, the Fiore, the Getty's Fiore manuscript. Um, and that we've shipped out more than half of the orders. And we've started working on development of a third one, which is Le Kuchner, right? The big fancy illustrated Messer treatise. And at, the, at this point, I've gone back on my intention to focus on manuscripts because the next one I announced is going to be Joachim Meyer. Um, and in this case, we're not just going to do a copy of a random copy of Meyer. We're going to focus on the um, painted version that's in the Leipzig University Library. Um, so it's a gorgeous full color Meyer. And I'm also planning on swapping out some pages to bring in some pages from copies of Meyer that have been annotated by hand by early readers. So there'll also be some marginal notes and so on to try to create a copy of Meyer that's really a used book and not just a sort of pristine anything, but give you an idea of what a copy of Meyer um, is really like. And I so there's like three different annotated copies that I'm going to merge together to create this really lived in Meyer. So I don't know if we can go out and find some really interesting Marozzo copies that aren't just sort of vanilla, pristine, never been opened up before copies, but find some that have actually been used and ideally used by fencers, mm -hmm. then I might get interested. Okay. I mean, Manchialino could be cool because it's so tiny, but yeah, like Marozzo is a pretty book. What's that? Is. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say uh, for Manchialino, you could have a, a pocket size, <laughs> just stuff it in the back of your pocket. I think the next one I'm going to do is going to be one of the really small manuscripts, like Kodetz Wallerstein, um, which is like five by seven. Wow. Um, but yeah, so going back to the question of if we could get people to start going to libraries and studying all the Marozzos that exist, then we could put together, I mean, Best case scenario, we could find a bunch of Marozzos all that have annotations in them and do a, an edition that also has just a book that compiles all the annotations. Like, it's entirely likely that there are extensively written in copies of Marozzo that are worth buying scans of and actually transcribing. We just don't know because no one's done the work yet. So, yeah. Well, I mean, this I is get, something maybe I should I should start pushing on if if it's really going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think that'll give our our listenership here uh, a, a mission to go out and and accomplish and actually get into the libraries. Yeah, I mean, I I have scans of like ten Marozzos, and there's way more than that out there, and they're pretty well geographically distributed. I don't think you have to live in Italy to find a copy of Marozzo near you. Yeah, I mean, now that I know that there's one at Virginia Tech, I think I'm planning a trip up to Blacksburg. <laughs> <laughs> so I, mean, I would love Let's to see. there's one in Greensboro North Carolina there's two. Oh, come there's... on <laughs> yeah North Carolina A&T State University has one and North University of North Carolina at Greensboro seems wow. to have one 
All right. Well, I guess day. I'm going to Greensboro. That's a weekend trip. Yeah, like 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 I said, these are people don't realize the availability of a lot of these books. Like, I mean, Harvard has. I've been to Harvard many times, and they're not the easiest library to get into, but they, anyone can get in if you get a letter from your public library. It's all they want to see. Um, that that's that's the level of credentials you usually need at most. <laughs> Right. Um, not even like a university library, a letter from Boston Public Library will get you in to Harvard yeah. University to look at their special collections. And they have like 20 fencing manuals from the 16th and 17th century. Right. That's incredible. So, yeah, uh, I would encourage everybody to do a little bit of research on that, especially if you know of a good university near you or just look at your public library. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a research university. There's a copy of Meyer at um, University of Texas, Austin, hmm. right? They're just random places. You're going to find cool stuff like that. Yeah. So when we were talking about transcription, um, if people don't <clears throat> get into transcription, especially like handwritten transcription, what are some skills that you think that they could learn to kind of help them in that endeavor? So handwriting is tough. Um, some are better than others. If you get into the good Italian humanist handwriting styles, then it's a lot easier. When you're looking at the cursives and some of the German black letters or even the Italian black letter, it can be difficult. There are books you can get. There's also study, study aids you can find online. The biggest hurdle is you can transcribe something without knowing the language, but it's a lot easier if you know it because a lot of times you're going to be grappling with letters that don't quite look right. And also with abbreviations that you're not really going to understand necessarily unless you speak the language. And there's books like, there's a book by a dude named Capelli um, where he tried to create a dictionary of Latin and Italian abbreviations that I've gotten a lot of use out of when I'm transcribing Fiona, for example. Um, and I know that my local Latin transcribers have also been used found a lot of use from it. Um, and there's resources like that. We call it the Swiggle Dictionary because mm -hmm. you can put in like, there's a cube with a weird thing attached to it and a stroke through it. What does this mean? <laughs> and it'll give you like 10 options. And then you have to narrow it down to which one of these is what's actually intended. You know, what word is this? So it's way easier to cut your teeth on printed books. Yeah. Um, where even the, the German fractor typefaces are not that hard once you get used to them. It's just like reading a weird font, but they're consistent, unlike handwriting. Yeah. So get you, but yeah, if you know the language and so you can develop a sense of what this word probably is when you're confused, that's really helpful. But also it's just a question of practice, practice, practice. Um, one thing you can do is go on Wiktenauer and take a text that I've already upgraded to this new page format and actually where you can compare the transcription with the page and just read through it and be like, okay, I can see how this word is etem, but what is this word? How do you get from there to there? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> practice on a thing that's already been transcribed by a reputable transcriber and you can help find help when you get stuck. But it's not a skill that you're just gonna know how to do out of the gate. I mean, honestly, I'm sure you've looked at handwriting by someone in the 21st century and been baffled at what they were trying to write down. Oh, I know yeah. that I have. 
I mean, I used to work in a hospital, so right, exactly. So you you get that. Yeah, doctor's yeah. handwriting. I go I, look at what a doctor scrawls for prescriptions. Yeah, it's insane. Uh, which also will give you the horrible abbreviation end of the of the problem, right? Exactly. Where the pharmacist knows what these three letters mean, but nobody else does. Yep. Um, yeah. So all those problems are there, and the only way to get used to them is by repetition by reading through them. So, you know, if you decide you want to transcribe, I would not start with a thing that's never been transcribed before, unless you have a buddy who's really good at it, who can help you. Yeah. I would start by looking at a text that you are familiar with, that you already like, and working through the transcription that already exists. And once you've done that for, you know, a few dozen pages, maybe you'll be ready to try one that's completely untouched. Um, but you know, for your listeners who are interested in the Bolognese stuff, I don't think there's anything that's untranscribed at the moment, manuscript wise, because there's really just, well, I mean, I guess the Vigiani manuscript hasn't been transcribed, but it's basically the same as the book. So if you wanted to try that out, you could take the printed page and put it next to the, the manuscript and start seeing how the spelling is different. Um, but I've never actually seen the Anonimo manuscript. I don't have scans of that one. So I don't know how hard that one would be. Vigiani is pretty and it's probably pretty easy. We need to. So that's one of the things that we need to rectify, though, because when I was talking to Jim <clears throat> uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, one of the things that he said or that he brought up is that there's the possibility that the Anonimo was written by multiple different authors, like almost like it was a house book. Um, huh. like with some of the KDF um, manuals where you have multiple instances of handwriting. Yeah. Are there different scribes involved? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And if that's the case, I, I'd really be interested to kind of dive into that and even see, you know, I mean, if you, if you really do like a, a handwriting study, sometimes you can kind of pinpoint different changes in language and things like that, or at mm -hmm. least the way written and potentially source different like time periods to see if it is written at different time periods um so i don't know I, maybe that's something that we need to to rectify see if we can get some scans of it he also said that it's surrounded by like all these like marble columns with like these this gold filigree and like all these little gold angels all around it which just makes <laughs> it sound <laughs> fantastic cool yeah yeah i i would like to get scans of that one it's hard. I, I've, I've had a lot of trouble getting scans out of Italian institutions, unfortunately. Um, the Anonimo is in, is in Ravenna? Where is it right now? Yeah, um, but I, I think that's where it was discovered. I can't remember. A, the a, lot, of these, a lot of these libraries are reticent to scan things in Italy for some reason, which... This, this seems to vary a lot by country. Like German museums are happy to scan whatever you want, but the Italians I've struck out several times, but I haven't ever tried for the Anonimo. Well, maybe this is the time with COVID. Maybe they'll be a little bit more uh, forgiving. Or, or they'll just be closed indefinitely. <laughs> uh, it looks like it's in the, uh, the National Library at Rome, actually. Okay. So, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't even been able to get the transcription of the Anonymo, to be honest, because Il Cercio doesn't want to ship to the U.S. anymore. So 
when I tried to get a copy of it a couple of years ago, because it's been transcribed forever, um, I couldn't even find someone who had exported to me, which is annoying. Yeah, is. So yeah, there's definitely more work to be done on the Italian side of that, even though we have this great translation now by, uh, what's his name? Steve. Steve. Yeah, uh, we. I would love to get a handle on what the Italian end of it is like. Yeah, for sure. And I just don't know. Yeah, that it would be good because I think even we have what like a French translation and then we have a couple of different transcriptions that have been floating about. Um, but it is would, there a digital transcription? Um, I know that there's a book I, which you can't get anymore. I tried yeah, yeah. Marco Roboli and Luca Cesari published it a long time ago. Yep. 2005. And it's completely sold out everywhere. It's gone. <sighs> hate it when that happens. I know. I I had an opportunity. I, 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 I think I actually did purchase one. And it was in like the UK. And uh-huh. then they sent me a letter like a month later. And we're like, oh, we're, we're kidding. We don't actually have that in stock. Which is pretty heartbreaking. Yeah, that, I've, I've been through that with several books. Um, that's why you have to hoard everything all the time so that just in case you ever need it. <laughs> that's right. Just in case Meyer ever goes out of print again and they go up to like $370 a book. <laughs> yep, that's why I have two copies. <laughs> yeah, so like I, I know that you've also done a lot of research with things involving the actual practice of scribing. Have you ever come across any recipes? This is, this is purely a question for me. But have you ever come across any um, historical recipes for inks? Um, I know that I've seen these things around on the internet, but I don't, that's not quite what I'm interested in. So I've never actually made particular note of it, but I'm pretty sure those are are fairly easy to find. There's a lot of them around and a lot of them have been transcribed and you can even find blog posts and videos of people who are trying to use the recipe and seeing what comes out of it. Cool. I'll check it out. So yeah, that, 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 that information is, is pretty easy to get, I think. But I never tried to make my own ink. Maybe someday I'll get into calligraphy and give that a shot. Oh, it's a great skill. It's a lot of fun. I, my wife was into it and I wasn't, I was always kind of hesitant to get into it. I mean, I've always uh, been very artistic and love to draw, but um, she finally convinced me. And that's actually why I started uh, transcribing um, all the, the KDF authors. And uh, I love it. it. Ever since I, I started doing that, like now that's all I do. Like if I have an opportunity to write between the computer or handwriting with calligraphy, I'll, I'll choose a fountain pen any day. <laughs> it's a great skill. So um, what are some interesting historical anecdotes that you've become aware of through your research or research that's been shared with you that relates to the Bolognese system? I don't think I really have any of those. Yeah. So I've, I've been dig deep into dueling studies for the past couple of years, but I've been focused on the end of the 15th century. So the pre-Bolognese era, really. And mostly this uh, Neapolitan writer named Parida del Pozo. Uh, so it's a bit early for 
Bologna. Yeah, I'm not the guy to ask for that. No. So what what is the one with the Neapolitan though? Uh, so Pozzo wrote a now he wrote a whole dueling treatise in the 1470s. Um, it's hundreds of pages long. It's a just a massive book where he was trying to formalize all of the dueling laws and customs into a single cohesive legal code um, governing dueling. And he and he a lot of it is anecdotes about duels that he he was aware of that had happened in the past and tricky problems of judging them and so on. Um, but he is pretty exhaustive in his discussion of everything from the preliminaries to the duel to what happens afterwards and just all kinds of wrinkles that are possible in, in the conduct of them. Because he was, he was a jurist, you know, like a legal expert who actually taught law at the University of Naples and was a legal advisor to the King of Spain. And he had a bunch of important roles like that. And so he thought that he would do the world a service by offering his expert legal opinions about everything related to the duel. And he actually has a second book that's all about um, forensic evidence hmm. related to crime scenes. And he was an early person who had opinions about that um, and how you should be collecting evidence to solve crimes. Um, and those are sort of his two works that he's known for. Um, but his, this is the this is basically the original book on dueling. There had been earlier treatises by legal experts that get into really vague subject topics, um, and they're mostly about the, about whether dueling is moral or not. And this is just a massive um, entry that really tries to dig into the procedural nature of dueling and the actual laws and customs and how duels work. And basically everybody for the next hundred years who wrote about dueling was responding to Pozo. And his book actually stayed in print until the 1540s. Um, so that, that's how popular it was. For the next 70 years, they were still reprinting his book. And it was translated into multiple languages, Spanish and uh, English even. Um, all the English translation was never published. So I've been working on a transcription of this manuscript of the English translation. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's really interesting, but it's a little bit too early to be relevant to any of the Marazzo of the Bolognese text that we have. Do you think it relates to Marazzo and his uh, chapters on dueling at all and his rules for dueling? Um, I'm told, and I, I can't prove this yet, that Marazzo is actually excerpting Pozo. Um, in his chapters on dueling, that he's actually, it's either a summary or a verbatim excerpt. And I need to actually transcribe them both to see how similar they are. But it's definitely related to Pozo. And that's who he chose to um, elucidate dueling. Although he only has a snippet. Pozo's book is really long. Yeah, I mean, Marazzo's is pretty short. Well, it's not that short. Hmm. I was actually just looking at it today. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it's just it's just you know one piece of book five. Yeah. Whereas po Pozo is like three hundred pages long. Um. So what is, what is something that you think um you know we as as practitioners can do um to better reflect the sources in our fencing um and that that can be for you know like a a broad general question uh, for the greater human community. That's a tough one. I mean the. <clears throat> The question of what reflects sources 
is contentious by itself, right? Everyone has an opinion on what it means to be more or less historical, you know, whether it's wearing historical clothing or trying to replicate historical mindset and historical violence, um, right? You can look at it from all different perspectives. I think, so, so this will be biased by the things that I think are interesting and the things that I'm interested in studying right now. I think that the thing that we're missing most often in our study of HEMA is the, the piece about where it was used historically. So not just about historical fencing practices, although we, we need to learn more about that too, right? Historical fencing teaching, but questions about historical violence are something that a lot of us have a shallow understanding of based on a couple of the same couple of books, right? Everybody reads Lusty's book about 16th century Augsburg and assumes they know what violence is like. Um, but I think that trying to really dig deep into not just generalities, but specific ideas about what, to me, it's a, a, a really big contribution is, is hearing some of the actual stories of, of violence. So you can look at statistics, you can look at generalities, but understanding where somebody actually had a certain buckler at and what they were doing with it is something where the information is out there. So like I said, I've been looking at dueling research, right? So I, I can tell you lots and lots of strange things that happened when two guys put on armor and had their swords and their spears in a list and fight each other with these weapons. And going from there, hundreds of permutations of bizarre outcomes of this matchup. And I think that that really informs the way I look at some of the armored fencing teachings is this is the reality of this situation. How does it compare to what people were teaching about it? So not necessarily assuming that these historical fencing teachings were being used in any of these historical narratives, but giving us, but I think we need a better basis of comparison for how relevant historical teachings were to these historical encounters. And then from there, we can take that and um, have it influence our training. If we're interested in replicating his history and not just having a good time sword fighting. And I'm not going to judge anybody who's out here just to swing blunt swords around, but I need something more out of my practice. I want to have at least a small amount of assurance that I'm doing what some fencing master sometimes, sometime intended me to do. And I think a lot of people have that, that thought in the back of their head. And one, one way to get there is by looking at what was happening in this time and place where these teachings were happening. You know, what, not just like what was crime like in Bologna, but also who were the people who were allowed to wear swords? How often were they getting into sword fights? Do we have first person accounts of some of those sword fights, right? I mean, I know that there are famous people who were involved like Giovanni de la Bandanera, um, who were who were allegedly students of Bolognese masters. Um, but like, what, what kind of fighting situation do they find themselves in? And are the teachings that we're practicing applicable to those situations? If so, how? If not, can we bridge that gap somehow? This training was preparing them in some way for those weird situations and try to focus on that and learn more about that, right?
Because, yeah. you know, learning fencing doesn't necessarily teach you how to survive a knife fight, but it gives you some skills. And maybe those skills are what they were trying to practice with this Bolognese fencing. Or maybe they were literally doing plays from these books in street fights. I don't know, but I want to know. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, and, and we do, like, unfortunately, <laughs> we, we could definitely use some better um, data points to really <clears throat> And I mean, one of our best is the the two sword duel with Ascanio, I believe is his name, right? The one that uh, Pier Marco uh, Terminello ended up uh, sort of writing up about, um, and that that's incredibly fascinating. I mean, if you look at the the paintings and the images that were created of that two sword duel, it actually looks like Murazzo's eighth play with two swords, right? Huh. No that he was uh killer was a student of bologna and we and his his uh his opponent in that duel was from the florentine school um i, I believe that's mentioned in the record um and yeah it, it looks ex like he's doing exactly like Murazzo's uh eighth play which is is really fascinating cool. um see and I, and I realized as i was talking about this that i might have got off track of what you were hoping my answer would be, since this is not something that everybody can just go out and do, this is something that we as a community can work towards. Yeah, no, no. And I'm, cool I, resources on. I completely agree. I mean, I just even just thinking off the top of my head, I don't know how you feel about um, The Sword in the Centuries as a book by Alfred Hutton. I have not read it. So. Oh, I mean, it's a book about duels through the centuries. It's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. You should get a copy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm aware of it. I just, I haven't really read anything from the, the late 19th so, century guys. Yeah, so I don't know how reputable it is. I Because he doesn't, he doesn't give any sort of sources as to where he found or how he compiled this information. Um, but there is one instance of a duel that I think is is referenced quite frequently, um, where something ended up happening with uh, a French lord and somebody, and that person who ended up offending the French lord went to Italy and studied with somebody who had studied the Bolognese system, and they ended up fighting with sword and buckler. Um, and it says in the fight that he ends up cutting him in the leg or like hamstringing the guy. And it says that mm -hmm. that was a dirty Bolognese trick. <laughs> <laughs> Which is true, because if you read through the Bolognese sources, you know, there are a lot of cuts to the leg. It's something that happens quite frequently. I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head. <laughs> but it's one of the duels that's, uh, that ends up, um, that's in the Sword in the Centuries. So, yeah, I mean, I, and I agree with you. I think that having an idea of, um, you know, what the practical outlook um, actually kind of stems into, like, I mean, just recently with the uh, Dirk Hagerborn, how do you say his last name? Uh, Hagedorn, I think. Hagedorn. Um, with the, what he found um, relating to Tallhofer, right? Mm -hmm. Tallhofer's duel that he had in the um, in front of uh, Duke Albert. Yeah, and now I, let me, let me add a, an extra caveat, which is, I don't think that we'll necessarily find that this is um, you know, real deadly fighting that, that's being taught here. Like, I don't think that we should go, we, we go, I think that going into this study with the idea that, that this was designed for murder is the wrong attitude. And it's, we, what we need is more information and sort of the open mind to consider that 
there could be any number of reasons why people were studying these things and, and, and they're all valid. Um, and it might be that it was for self-defense, but it could be completely different. Um, and in fact, it's likely that there were parts of it at least that were being taught for recreation or for other things like that. And getting the sort of whole multicolor um, landscape of this fencing culture is where I would like to see us get long-term, where it's not just one thing. And it's not that people use this in duels, therefore we have to approach our training as though we're gonna fight a duel, but just understanding what this meant to these people, which was yeah. probably a lot more than just a, a, a tool for dueling. One of the good, I think one of the good data points that we have in the Bolognese system that helps us to differentiate that is that the Bolognese masters will often tell us when something is supposed to be done in the sal and when it's mm -hmm. play and when it's not. So when Marazzo has his sword and small buckler, he tells you to use a, a, um, a, a training sword, right? He tells you to, you know, use a training sword for fighting with small buckler. Then when he gets into sword and large buckler, he tells you to use a sharp sword. So you have the difference between an abatimente and an assault. So typically the assaulty are something that would be done for either a demonstration or for show and would be done with weapons that were not necessarily meant to be sharp. And then an abatiment or did I get that backwards? Yeah, and then the abatimente are things that are done with sharp swords and would be done in earnest. And so we get a similar uh, anecdote with Manchilino and there are other instances um, with, uh, with other authors like the Anonimo where he'll talk about essentially like earnest fighting and, and fighting and deadly fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you've also got things like the school rules that Manchilino mentions in his introduction. And there, there's there's a lot of hints in there about the, their fencing school culture that I think would be just as valuable as more information about street violence, for example. For sure. I would love to know how Italian fencing schools operated in the 15th century. Yeah. And if there's things we can learn from that, or at least things that we can use to inform our practice. Yeah, and I mean, and you've you've been doing a lot of stuff with this and putting stuff on your Patreon. Um, so if if people are interested, um, and and seeing some of the stuff that Michael's been doing um, and supporting Wixen Hour, which is probably the most important endeavor in uh, historical European martial arts um, in terms of its overall reach, um, you can find him. And I'll put a link to Michael's Patreon. Um, but definitely follow him on Patreon because one of the things that you've been doing is posting some of these duels that you found, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, definitely check that out. Um, and for those who are interested in Hemo Bookshelf, I'll also put a link for um, the uh, the kick. Is it is it on Kickstarter or is it on Indiegogo? It's Indiegogo, right? Yeah. So there's a website for Hemo Bookshelf, and then we do our pre-orders for the facsimiles through Indiegogo usually. Gotcha. Yeah, um, and you can still order the the first three facsimiles through Indiegogo until they sell out. Um, but I can get you links for both of those. Perfect. Yeah. And I'll, I'll include those so people can go and check those out. But um, I think with that, um, we can go ahead and wrap this up. Um, Michael, I really appreciate you coming on uh, and sharing your wisdom with us. Hopefully we'll have an army of Bolognese inspired people coming through libraries, <coughs> getting out there and, and doing the work that's necessary to get Marazzo into Hemo bookshelf. <laughs> Yeah, well, you've got me. You've got me thinking about this again, and I've got a bunch of tabs open now in my browser. I'm gonna, 
put together another catalog of, of Murato's that I know about. And we'll see if we can, uh, and we'll, we'll put that on the Facebook group and some other places and see if as COVID is fading and libraries start reopening, we'll see if we can get people in there to, uh, to start looking at books and finding interesting things, which maybe won't be till the end of the summer, but eventually we'll get there, right? Yeah, I hope. Absolutely. Yep. Michael, it was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks a lot. This was fun. And that concludes another episode of Learte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Michael again uh, for coming on and sharing his wisdom with everyone. Uh, next week's guest is going to be David Biggs. Uh, for those of you who don't know David Biggs, he's been practicing martial, Western martial arts for over 25 years. He's been studying Giovanni Dallogocchi for 18 years. Uh, he it practices uh, Western martial arts in both the SEA and in HEMA. Um, in the SEA, he's a member of the White Scarf in the Order of the Laurel, um, and he has won countless tournaments um, through his years uh, in competition uh, from HEMA to Western Martial Arts and um, the SEA. So definitely uh, tune in for that one. We're going to be talking about Blade Dynamics, um, uh, Strindre, and um, various aspects of um, fencing that sometimes are hard to glean from the Bolognese sources, but really seem like essential elements. Um, really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have because I believe that it's going to uh, be incredibly beneficial in terms of just helping some people connect the dots in terms of how to approach these actions um, and hopefully enrich their practice. So stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends. <laughs>